As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Thursday, January 27th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we have a lot of great questions that have been flowing through the mailbag. we got questions about Stuff Plus and Location Plus and Pitching Plus that we're going to try and answer, which will hopefully shed some light on that model and, and how just, how we talk about it. I just saw your... Uh... Your cry on for us today on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a limited amount of real estate, but I try to make it as valuable <laughs> as possible. So I I'm proud of myself for for once, which is okay. Right. What is the DVR plus going to be on this episode? Mm, that's the question. Uh, so <laughs> other questions include questions about how to use draft capital on prospects in redraft leagues. That is a great path to go down some draft and hold questions in there honestly the questions are so large in scope there's a chance that we don't get to all of them so we're not gonna spend too much time dilly-dallying here at the beginning not sure where that expression came from or why i just used it uh, we do have some show business to attend to we have uh, an announcement of sorts it is uh, a promotion i would say for the friday installment of rates and barrels as you know it the show that Eno and Britt and I have been doing together really since the summer of 2020. Uh, we've moved that show into the athletic baseball show feed, which is awesome because that Friday show generally focuses more on real baseball and the issues plaguing the sport, the fun things around the sport that are not necessarily fantasy or advanced stats related. So we are now part of the bigger show that the athletic has. It's awesome. We're going to run on Thursday mornings is when that episode is going to launch, so we'll record midweek. And the videos are going to be available on the Rates and Barrels YouTube page. So if you want those episodes as a podcast, they're in the Athletic Baseball Show feed going forward. But if you want to just watch them on YouTube, we'll have a carousel for that specific show within the Rates and Barrels YouTube page. Right, so if you just listen to the Rates and Barrels Fantasy ones, uh, that's what's what you're going to get in your podcast feed for Rates and Barrels going forward. Uh, but if you did like that uh, that other show with Britt, then try us out on YouTube or or try out the Athletic Baseball Show. I mean, it's it's a really good lineup. I mean, it's like the mailbag with Ken Rosenthal. You know, Jason Stark has great guests. Keith Law's on there. 
you know, I'm I'm honored to to be alongside those uh, great names, and uh, we'll just add some levity, and you know, I I can't help myself. Like the advanced stats will will come with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think a lot is going to change about how we approach that episode. I think it's going to be very similar. So if you liked it the way it was, then congratulations. It's going to be very similar. And I think the other thing to keep in mind too, if there's anything we want to do that is somehow too fun for that feed, it will still happen <laughs> here. Britt is part of the Rates and Barrels family. She always will be. So, you know, we'll have our, our holiday specials, right? If we're going to do a, a Christmas movie draft again, something like that probably fits better on Rates and Barrels than it does on the Athletic Baseball Show. Unless, you know, if Ken and Keith and Jason and Doug and everybody over there, if they're all into that, then, you know, we can have a, a big happy family version of something like that too. But that's the big change. It's exciting. It's a promotion. It's an upgrade. It's a good thing. And we're really excited about it. And it gives us, I think, a little more wiggle room within the feed here to potentially grow with more fantasy stuff in the future should uh, circumstances, time, all those things actually allow us to do that. So it seems like kind of a, a win-win really for, for everything we're trying to do. And it was always a little bit uh, awkward. I mean, for for us or for anybody probably to kind of switch gears on Fridays. I mean, Rates and Barrels is is nominally a fantasy podcast. And thank you to the, those of you who listen who still don't play fantasy baseball, who've never played fantasy baseball. That yeah, is, that's why, that why is amazing. That nominally, like we are, nominally we're very grateful there. that we've found a way to talk about this game in a way that <laughs> is engaging and fun for people who don't even spend the time playing 5x5 five five or head-to-head or any of the things that uh, we ever get into. So that's the big announcement uh, at this point. So be sure to check out the Athletic Baseball Show. First episode that moved over actually showed up this morning. So uh, we're finishing off a series from that podcast, going team by team through each division, talking about what the rest of the offseason will look like once the lockout is over. It's an AL East episode for anybody who's interested in that. But let's get to... Oh, oh! Then one of the lowlights is uh, my budget. Oh plan my god, for the that was Yankees. my favorite part of the episode. <laughs> like without question, I would just love the Yankees to roll that out and see how people think of it. The Raisian plan for the Yankees. Yeah, would love to see Yankees Twitter that day, and by love to see it, we'll definitely avoid Twitter that day if they follow the plan that you outlined on that pod. So some questions came in from Bill in Toronto, who is uh, battling snowstorms and typical winter cold in Toronto. So he's got a lot of questions about Stuff Plus and Pitching Plus and Location Plus. And I know when we talk about it, it's one of those topics that I think can be a little frustrating for some people because as a model, it does have a little bit of a black box sort of feel to it. We're, we're trying to be mindful of that. We're not trying to present anything as a, a be-all, end-all to the conversation or the hey, the stuff plus number is good. Draft this guy. We're out of here. Like That's not ever what we're trying to do. It's just a, a model that I think is designed to help us better understand what's really happening under the hood, so to speak. What is going on with the pitcher's arsenal and kind of tracking how impactful pitches can be and just kind of looking at it through a more, almost a more granular sort of lens and, and quantifying nastiness, quantifying command, quantifying location, like quantifying some things that right. previously I think were in scouting reports, but not necessarily as, as easy to measure pitcher by pitcher in a very clear and kind of scientific way. I had a pitcher, uh, I had an analytics mailbag go up today with Lindsay Adler, and one of the questions kind of was like, how can we play along? How can we we follow along? And I think the easiest answer I have for you, uh, because there are, you know, this isn't 
a model that produces easy mottos or like, you know, easy one-line takeaways, you know? I, the best I can do for you in that regard is vertical movement is a little bit more important than horizontal movement. Uh, velocity matters and <laughs> a lot of other stuff matters too. <laughs> but one thing that is kind of cool is on the Savant page, there's a movement profile uh, for each uh, picture and it's color-coded. And I may not agree with Tom Tango on every single one of his decisions when it comes to the color coding, but generally I agree with him. So if you want to look at Jesus Lazardo's page, and that's why I also wanted to mention that vertical movement is more important than horizontal movement. If you look at Jesus Lazardo's StatCast page, you see a lot of blue in the vertical movement. I mean, it's just all blue. And I think that's helpful on the very base level to say, why is this guy who throws 94 seems to have a good out pitch, you know, why from the left side? Like, why is he having so much trouble? Well, look at all that blue in the movement. And, you know, it's not just the velocity that matters anymore. And, you know, it is maybe unfortunate that uh, as we dive deeper and deeper into pitching, we find all these uh, seam shift away, you know, like the, the grips matter and like, you know, that's just not something that I'm going to, it's super easy to like, because even with that, like we, we carry the stat axis delta, and that's the difference between the inferred move spin axis and the observed spin axis. Now that's already like a mouthful, right? Uh, but then on top of that, it's not always more is better. <laughs> you know, that because it's a difference, it can go negative and positive, right? <laughs> and sometimes it's better to be far, uh, from the, the mean, it could be very negative, very positive, or both good. So uh, it is what it is. We try to explain things as much as possible. When you're looking for changes, I would look for changes in those color-coded savant pages. I would look for pain changes on Brooks. And the very base thing that you can do um, is, you know, if you notice that a player is pitching differently, you can go to Brooks, you can go to savant, and you can see if there is a difference in their movement profile from the year before or their pitch mix. Those are the two, that's that's the basic toolbox right there. And be like, oh my God, he's throwing a slider 40% of the time this year. He threw it 20% of the time last year. That That's a more believable breakout to me than the guy who's throwing all the same pitches at all the same movements and for some reason uh, has better results this year. So uh, anyway, I've, I've lost the plot again. I, no, no, like, no, I think, I think pitch, <laughs> pitch usage, velocity and changes in movement. Those are things that are much easier to just go look at on any player's page. Thanks to Savant, thanks to Brooks, thanks to these different tools that are out there. So that's important to keep in mind that it's not just, here's the number, trust it. It's look and see, like see these changes as they're happening and you're going to end up in a very similar. And we are still working on, uh, some sort of stuff plus app within the athletic, uh, I just have to tell you, there's a lot of moving parts. It's it's a complicated process. It's almost like a merger of corporations. So, um, and, and there there happens to be another <laughs> another merger of corporations happening above it. So <laughs> there's uh, limited resources on the legal team. Anyway, that's too much information, but uh, you know, hopefully uh, we'll get it we'll get it together pretty soon. Next Thursday, we will literally show everyone how to make sausage. <laughs> So the first, the Bills questions, uh, we were talking about Stuff Plus and Location Plus probably at the beginning of January, and we were discussing relievers when you brought up the point that Pitching Plus for relievers is better than projections. And later in the same show, you mentioned that Stuff Plus is stickier 
year to year than pitching plus. So guys like Blake Trinan and Aaron Loop rank much higher based on stuff plus than they do on pitching plus, even though, as Bill points out, they do very well on both. Should we be looking more at stuff plus or pitching plus when planning our relievers and kind of choosing who to take chances on either as discounted closers or as maybe non-closer relievers who could emerge to take on more prominent roles? You know, uh, apologies. We, we were testing the model, so we tested pitching plus, but I do think that he's connecting the dots correctly here. I think we're talking about the same thing where he's, I agree with his general line of thought that stuff plus is stickier year to year. Um, it's, it, it becomes uh, meaningful uh, very quickly. And we're talking about relievers who have small samples, uh, you know, they by definition, small samples. So I would hew closer to stuff. Plus I did a sort for minimum. Uh, I think it was 300 pitches, uh, you know, for relievers and looked at the stuff plus, And then I, uh, I, I picked, you know, usage still matters. That's one of the things that Derek Cardi always found when he tested, he tried to test all these things against saves. And he was like, that you know, prior experience doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. You know what matters? Usage. Who's being used in the eighth inning, you know, ends up getting called up to the ninth. So I would add that I do think, uh, you know, stuff plus for relievers matters. It's how teams make decisions. It's how they assign people. That's how they trade for people. In fact, if you look at, uh, for example, Seattle, they're all over the top 10 in uh, in stuff plus with Johan Ramirez at seven and Paul Seawald at, at eight. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense um, that, you know, given what I know about their pitching development, and their uh, their analytics. But uh, so I would look at the stuff plus list and then look at guys that are either undervalued closers, like Bill says, or eighth inning, seventh inning guys that could get the call up. So to me, the names that stood out were Jake Cousins, second and stuff plus, uh, Johan Ramirez, uh, who was seventh and stuff plus, doesn't look as good by pitching plus because he had an 89 command plus, uh, location plus. That's I mean, that, I think that can fluctuate. Not only can it fluctuate because he's a reliever and it's a small sample, but 89 is fringe and fringe location plus changes more than sort of, you know, 97 to 105, which is kind of the meaty location plus. That's more reliable when it comes to 89 uh, location plus. He could jump up to 95 next year and that would be huge for him as a reliever. Um so that's a little bit tough, though, because Paul Seawald is right there next to him. And I've found that buying into the Mariners bullpen, especially in like a draft and hold, where you're trying to like, hey, can I buy two guys and maybe shut down that and own that bullpen? I kind of have a hard time identifying like the two guys I would want in the Seattle bullpen. I like Paul Seawald and Johan Ramirez, but you might draft both of those guys late and still miss <laughs> so um it, it's a tough bullpen to do that for but uh, another name that uh, sticks out for me is jordan romano 16th and stuff plus and he's not being treated as a uh, as a lockdown closer and i think he's one of the last in that tier um i have jordan romano as my first closer in in some teams where i kind of let that one sit for a while but I feel good about it because I think Romano is, is lights out. And you can easily pair Romano with Julian Merriweather, who's a top 50 reliever by Stuff Plus, where, you know, I like those two guys as uh, as as a possible uh, handcuff, as they call it. Uh, a couple other names are Andrew Kittredge. Um, you know, people, he's going to get saves. 
Uh, people don't like him because of the, the velocity, but Stuff Plus loves him. Uh, Tanner Scott had a, like a four and a half, five ERA last year for Baltimore, but the walls are coming in and everyone likes Wells, but you know, it could be Scott. Um, and then Luis Garcia and Giovanni Gallegos are two, um, you know, top 50 stuff plus guys that I think are closers. You know, Gallegos, I think is just being a little overdrafted he's right the, he's now. He's the one that has the highest ADP out of all of these names. I said almost. Yeah, I think him and Romano are probably the two most pricey on a pretty consistent basis. I'm with you on Romano being a little underdrafted right now relative to what he's done and what appears to be a decent hold on the job in Toronto. Seattle's a really difficult place to speculate. That's part of the problem with some of the teams that are are stacking up relievers that pop in a model like this is they have four or five <laughs> options to use in a spot like that. And I do think trying to crack the code, understanding what matters to a team is more or less what you're doing here with this number and then seeing the actual usage pattern and trying to break it from there is probably the best way to solve the who actually gets the role question that's where i'm worried about gallegos for so long i thought he was the best reliever in st louis and he wasn't their closer and he was good enough to use when he wasn't closing but that's because the price was cheaper than it was right now so that's the problem i've run into him into with him this draft season it's not that i don't like him as a pitcher it's that we've seen some past usage that makes me worry that even a more analytics forward manager, which is the case now with Ali Marmol over Mike Schilt, Gallegos might just be the guy that pitches at the most important late inning moment regardless. And it might be 15 saves instead of 35, even though he's capable of getting 35 if they were to use him the way that the Brewers used Josh Hader in 2021. There's a little bit of a Mariners thing going on in St. Louis too, honestly, because Jordan Hicks uh, you know, scores well by this and Reyes scores well by this. So it's like three options. You know, other teams that do really well, if you want to talk about that kind of team aspect, which I think is really interesting, um, you know, the Dodgers are all over this. Trinan is, has the best stuff plus of any reliever in baseball, uh, but Gratterall's not far behind. Hudson was, uh, was, I think, the second best stuff plus among free agent relievers. Um, you know, even without Jansen, they've, they've put together a good bullpen again. Um, and then the Astros, Enoli Paredes and Ryan Stanek show up as possible values, but Presley is like a top 10 guy. So it's like, but it, you know, we're all, this is by stuff plus, but you know, yeah, I would love to say Enoli Paredes, especially cause his name is Enoli and you know, I'm a cannoli away from being Enoli, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that Presley's at a risk for losing his job. So it is interesting to kind of think about the team aspects, but sometimes those really good, those good bullpens do create more save opportunities and the guys atop them are, are better for it. Presley is, is good, is better because he has Paredes and Stanek behind him and so on. But at the same time, uh, it does make it hard to uh, kind of corral the whole bullpen if you're trying to do that. Well, I think it, it sheds some light on the, what happens if Presley gets hurt sort of question, because he's so safe compared to so many other closers, I don't think I spend as much time analyzing who's next up there as I would in some of those committee situations or for teams that don't necessarily have a, a great pitcher in that role right now. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Like It might just be an unfortunate injury that opens the door for someone like Paredes to get saves. Maybe he isn't draftable right now, but he's the guy that you're ready to take the chance on uh, when Fab rolls around early in the season if in fact, Presley goes down. Uh, in the same pod, you mentioned Stuff Plus is stickier year-to-year -year than Location Plus. 
And if Bill recalls correctly, you have some Location Plus data from past years. If Location Plus isn't as sticky, it might be more likely to regress to the mean, assuming you have enough history to have any sense of what a player's past level is. Does that open up an opportunity to rank starters by 2021 stuff plus and then look at the starters whose 2021 Location Plus was well below either 2020 or 2019, 2020 to identify the potential bounce back players. If so, who could those bounce back players be? Yeah, I mean, in the spirit of the question, the, at the top of the rankings, there are some players like uh, Joe Musgrove and Jack Flaherty that had uh, better years. Even Aaron Nola had better years uh, by command, uh, by location plus in the past. Um, so that could have been... Uh, I mean, Musgrove had an excellent season, so I'm not, I don't think he needs to bounce back, but it does factor into my appraisal of their, uh, them going forward. But the way that I use it mostly is that near the end of my rankings, um, I will start taking, uh, doing a sort where I just sort and see who's the, who's the best stuff plus guy that I haven't put in the rankings yet. Um, and, and you, often it's because they have low location plus numbers. And then I can say, well, you know, you know, if this, if this regresses upward or, you know, if they make a, make a tweak there, if the location plus is better next year, um, then, or if we don't know his true talent location plus just yet, um, then, uh, this, these are, are good players to target. So that's, that's still Christian Javier for me. Uh, Nate Pearson is the, uh, the poster child for this. Cause he was up to one Oh two. Uh, late in the season his stuff plus is is really good but uh, he's got like a 91 location plus but we don't have that much information on him so um, the other two names that I really think about when I think about this are Edward Cabrera and Tony Gonsolin both guys that are going to be available late in your drafts Um, they had above average stuff plus they have struggled with command uh, in their in their past but Edward Cabrera has some really tiny walk rates in the minor leagues and that doesn't mean that necessarily he's got great command, but it does mean that he's had better years or he's had better strategies in the past where he hasn't walked that many. And Gonsolin's kind of, we've seen him yo-yo, honestly. Like we've seen him be like a perfectly acceptable starter and then lose it all in the in the playoffs. So uh, what if the yo-yo goes in the other direction? He seems to be like maybe the third or fourth starting pitcher in, in Los Angeles right now. So the opportunity's never been greater. So those are a bunch of names that I think of when when I when I think that's an excellent question because that's it gets to um, my ranking process. I, I because we did so much testing with pitching plus and saw how powerful it was. Uh, these ranks will hew closer to pitching plus, but I use stuff plus a lot um, at certain points, and you'll see in the rankings where you're like, oh. You know, around 7580, he just like did that sort again where he like, you know, here are all the, the stuff plus guys that could that could pop, you know, um, and injury is the same way. I'm getting injury uh, projections from Jeff Zimmerman this year again, um, he, and he's giving me uh, projected days on the IL. Um, and uh, what you'll see is um, it because what happens is like Clayton Kershaw, right? You have to put him somewhere. So you put him somewhere and then, you know, I go up and down the rankings, I go up and down the rankings and I'm like, who would I rather have than Clayton Kershaw? And that's, I think, a really important line to draw because if they are good and going to be healthy, then they have to, they have to be above Clayton Kershaw, right? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But if they're 
not good and just going to be healthy, they're probably going to be below like Kershaw, right? So there's a lot of sort of, you'll see like the the, the injury risk, uh, there'll be some certain lines where like there's little groupings around Clayton Kershaw. Like right, like right now, I'm interested actually where you have Kershaw and we've lost the plot again, but that's all right. Um, I've got Kershaw <laughs> at like 40, right? And around him are all these in uh, all these IP uh, risks: uh, Shane Baz, Luis Patino, Alec Manoa. Uh, maybe Manoa didn't need to be there. We'll see. That's still a soft ranking. Michael Kopech, Mike Clevenger. You know, those are all uh, those. They, they sort of Kershaw was like the magnet for all the IP risks where I'm like, oh yeah, this is the part where like you take a shot at a guy who may not have a lot of innings but should be good if he's in. Yeah, but then it's also conditional upon what you've done prior to that. Yeah. Do you have a, a really stable foundation or did you already take a little bit of risk with maybe a few younger pitchers or an ace that has elevated injury risk? Like if you drafted DeGrom, if you felt like DeGrom in round three made sense, like you're probably staying away oh, from... Yeah. Kershaw in that spot because you've already taken on a considerable amount of health risk in, in the foundation. So that's a consideration too. I think with Kershaw, I'm so pessimistic about his health. Oh, which so is you have him even lower. It's not fair. I, I've got him even below Cindergard and Clevenger. I had him below Severino even. Mm. Just below Kopech, below Tanner Houck. I mean, wow. I, I'm just not planning on even drafting him even feet? though... He is. He's t- he's fifty fifth right. right now, and it, this is an ongoing yeah, process. Yeah, I'm still, like it, still working on it. I, I'm not. I'm not married to this, but I, I have found in the early drafts that I've done, I have never been in a position where I saw Kershaw at the top of the queue, looked at my team, and said, "Yep, got to do this right mm. now." You know, I, I might be reading too much into the Dodgers and the way they've handled him, but you know, if, if we get out of the lockout and he quickly resigns with them that changes quite a bit about my expectations for him because if they re-sign him, they must have some belief that he's actually healthy enough to give them a good number of innings. Unless they resign him to a three-year deal and they're just paying for years two and three. Um, Yeah, the the story I have for this that, you know, I think the feeling was very much when Kershaw got hurt that, wow, this this is a big deal. He's out. This He might be out next year. Like, this might be TJ. Uh, he got the the platelet infusion or whatever the PRP injection, which I don't know how often that's actually worked in the past. But I keep thinking of Brandon Belt. When Brandon Belt hurt his knee, everybody around the team was like, "He's out. It's going to be another knee surgery. It's the knee he hurt before. It's the knee he had surgery before. It looked bad. He can't put any pressure on it. Like it's he's out. He's out. He's out." And we talked to him when he came back, and he said, "One day I woke up and it felt better." <laughs> so uh yeah i think that i do think that story could go either way i mean you're like you know uh, kershaw woke up one morning and said no i gotta go get the tj so um in that moment there's gonna be a really terrible awkward moment after they do make an agreement where everybody reports to camp at the same time and everybody who hasn't been talking to their teams has to then be like Oh yeah, my elbow was barking all off season, but I just ignored it. Or like, oh, I haven't actually thrown for three weeks because you know I felt some soreness, and you're just like, and I couldn't tell you, and I couldn't tell you, 
And they're not going to necessarily offer that up uh, on their Twitter accounts and stuff. You know, <laughs> like nope. I did get uh, Lance of the Colors to say on Twitter that he was throwing again uh, by asking just by asking him on Twitter. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, the good news might filter through, but the bad news we're not going to hear about it until there's going to be uh, a week of transactions and bad news that all of us who are drafting right now <laughs> are going to be like. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be tough. So, yeah, I guess why why, why lean into that right now? Be as safe as possible right now because it, it could be another, another crap show later. Yeah, that's where I'm at, at least as things stand on January 27th. I, like always, reserve the right to make an adjustment if uh, more information, especially mm-hmm. of the positive variety, comes to light. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. There was one other Stuff Plus question that I wanted to throw your way. This one came in from Derek via email, not from me, from a different Derek. What do you do when you see a pitch that passes the eye test but not the Stuff Plus test? Uh, He throws Logan Gilbert's curveball and Shane McClanahan's fastball as pitches that stick out to him. Is it possible to project that they are a tweak away from better Stuff Plus and results when pitches look good by the eye test? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. uh, There's a sort of multifaceted answer uh, on there, which is that step one is there are are things that are not in this model. So Ian Anderson's changeup rates poorly by Stuff Plus. It is possible that the angle of his forearm, the extreme uh, over-the-top release, uh, the way he hides the ball... Uh, the relationship between his arm angle and the, the the movement that comes out of it, sort of, people expect him to be a north south guy, and then he actually has some wiggle on his on his changeup. All of those things are not necessarily explicitly in the model, and may not be able to be in the model until we have pose estimation data from Hawkeye, which is to say, uh, data about which what the angle is on the forearm and what the angle is here and. That stuff exists and teams have it and teams are working right now on including that into stuff models uh, because most teams have a stuff model and uh, and are, 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 you know, trying to advance it beyond what, you know, what we have and what they're doing is adding uh, body stuff. So there, so that's, that's the first answer to the question is that this is an evolving model. We're trying to improve it and, you know, there, there's, there's aspects that aren't captured. So if you feel strongly about Ian Anderson's changeup uh, and the model, uh, you know, says it's no good, I mean, just ignore it, man. Like, if you feel strongly, it's not like we've figured pitching out. 
<laughs> so I've been trying to, but uh, we haven't figured it out. Then uh, there's a, a, a step beyond this, which uh, opens a, maybe shines some light on what the best sort of development labs are doing, which is um, to say, if you track what you can change in a drill, so you can say, hey, wow, if we do this drill, I just talked to uh, Mike Sun from ProPlayI for a piece I'm doing on the future of biomechanics uh, with Alec Lewis. And in this piece, he said, you can use our app, which kind of, it's the app that turns pictures into like lines, you know, turns them into like little geometric lines. He says, you can use this app to, to, to judge the validity of a drill you're doing. So he said, Oprah, the baseball development group in Toronto, um, they had people that were flying open too early. On uh, uh, So when they were landing, their trunk was for, was too far forward, right? And so they did a thing called the janitor drill, which is um, you kind of do the Quato, right? You show your back to the hitter and you start all the way back and then you turn around and pitch, right? There's there's deliveries like that. You can, you can imagine what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, and they used this biomechanical analysis that was available to them through the ProPlay app to see, oh, it did change trunk rotation. It, it, it had an effect at trunk rotation at footfall, and it helped us do this thing we we're trying to do. So if you line all that up and you say, okay, with this drill, we can do this. With this drill, we can do this. With this grip, we can do this. If you line all that up, then you can start to say, okay, we can reliably give you a half inch of ride. You know, if you come in here, we can find a way to give you a half inch of ride on your four seam. We can find a way to give you two inches of sweep on your slider. We can do this and this and this, right? If you line that up, you can actually create a kind of expected or goal stuff plus, like a like a possibility, a ceiling stuff plus, where you can say, hey, this is you right now, you're like 99 stuff plus, and you could probably make a, a living in baseball and you'd be fine. But we have these three tweaks we can make, and we see you as like a 102 stuff plus. And you know what? The best teams are absolutely doing this. And you know what the evidence is? All the guys that like the Rays get, where they're like, hey, we're going to give you one target, right? That's like a location plus play, where they're like, hey, if we give them one target instead of four targets, then all of a sudden their location plus numbers are much better. Like Glass now, right? Glass now has you could probably take a guy that's hitting one target more consistently and give him a second target eventually. Right. Yeah. Instead of Simplify. trying to have four locations work simultaneously, get right. one to work, and when you got one, add another. And if you have two, maybe add another. Like you, you can build up that way. Yeah, but Lance Brozdowski has a has a really cool thing on this on Twitter where he was like, "No, they give him one target." <laughs> Glassdoor has one target. The next time Glassdoor pitches, watch. I mean, it's going to be a little bit, but they give him one target. And they do this to a fair amount of their pitch. I think I bet you Luis Patino has one target. But in any case, uh, uh, where I was going with this is the other example is like, you know, why do, why are there teams that seem to like acquire a pitcher, make a little tweak and make him better? That's because in their model, they said, hey, this guy has an X stuff plus right now. But like, we think he can get to Y if we do these three drills that we've done in the past, you know? And so that's what the best teams are doing. That's what the Astros are doing is saying like, well, you know, we know that we can do this for hitters and we can do this for pitchers with these drills. We've proven that with these drills. So we should go out and look for hitters that are missing this aspect because we think we can coach them up on that. 
You know, if they're good at all this other stuff, it's almost like, oh, you know what it's a little bit like? Uh, the Rays with exit velocity, right? They got guys, they like to get guys that have plate discipline and exit velocity. And they say, we're going to try and coach the launch angle into you, Yandy Diaz. It worked for a little bit. It didn't work. It, you know, maybe it did work. It did work with Randy Rosarena, I think. You know, like he was a guy who hit too many ground balls, too hard ground balls, but like he's got decent power now. So that's that's their theory is like we can coach up launch angle and, you know, if they have the raw plate discipline and exit velocity, then we know we have these drills that can do this. So um, unfortunately, that's a little bit hard uh, for me to do in the public sphere because I don't have access to all these drills and stuff. But I, I did think of this. This question did think of uh, spur an idea, which is we could look at what changes are most common in baseball and just say, oh, you know what? Last year, 30 pitcher, pitchers added a half inch of ride. You know, 25 pitchers added an inch of sweep on their on their slider. So you could just add that in, you know, and have like a, a, a peak pitching plus or a peak stuff plus. And then you could uh, do some sorting in, in our app or in the, the Google Doc for now. Uh, there's a Google Doc of, of all the Location Plus and Stuff Plus from last year. It's in a piece called Why Should Anyone Care About Stuff Plus, uh, if anyone's looking for that. Uh, but yeah, if we had like a peak one in there, you could be like, oh, look, uh, Shane McClanahan, Stuff Plus is 103, but peak stuff peak one is 106 or something. You, know? you could kind of find some sleepers that way. A favor uh, to me as the producer of the show, if you use or look at the show notes, just the little show description that shows up for every episode, whether that's on YouTube or uh, Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen on your podcast player, if you send us an email or a tweet and just want to indicate, yes, I look at the show notes, no, I don't look at the show notes, that would actually be very helpful just to get a sense for if that space has any value at all. I, for a while, <laughs> I, I didn't... Put some metrics on it. Exactly. Well, yeah, I could put like an Easter egg or something in there, but now I said something, so I've already ruined the study. But it's it's something that's a little bit of an unknown, I feel like, that we just don't, we don't, if it's helpful, I can put more information in there. But if no one's going to use it, I'm not going to take the time to do it. But this is exactly it. This is the work of player development. You have to be able to put a number on it to know if it's worth anything. Right, is you, this drill yeah. that I'm doing, making show notes, is this useful time? You know? Right. I only have a limited amount of time to do anything. If it's important, <laughs> I will do it. If it's not important, I will not do it. But thank you for the questions, Bill and Derek. A uh, lot of good stuff there. I just know it's, a, it's an area that people are always asking questions about. So we're trying to be as helpful as we can to shed more light on you know, what's happening in that space. Uh, we had a great question come in from Mitch, and it's about using redraft capital on prospects he writes he had a topic that interested him that was inspired by a tweet calling out the difference between bobby witt and riley green's adps Witt goes inside the top 100 green kind of goes more the back of the top 300 somewhere in that range the general idea was that both prospects have similar playing time expectations high ceiling power speed profiles and have been plagued by somewhat high strikeout rates throughout their time in the minor leagues. And the point was why waste precious draft capital by chasing an inflated Bobby Witt Jr. at his ADP when you could just get Riley Green several rounds later. So just as a core concept, early prospects versus later prospects, how often do you go after a prospect that gets that top 100, even top 150 range ADP by the time we, we get to opening day? Because I have I've moved a little bit on this over time. So I'm just curious if there's a, a non-starter sort of rule that you have, if you're case by case, 
Uh, where where are you at on this? This uh, may not be a popular take, and it may be a blind spot for me. But heck, no, man, I'm not in. I'm not in at all. I'm not going to spend a starting spot on my roster in a redraft on a guy that I have no idea if he's going to play this year and how much he's going to play this year. I'm not going to do it. I will do it at the bench level. So, for example, in these DCs, I've done two DCs, which are draft and holds on NFPC, and the only real sort of prospects that, uh, that uh, you know, fit this discussion that I have are Vidal Brujan, who I took uh, because I was a little bit short on speed, and I took him in the 24th round um, uh, of my NFBC. And then MJ Melendez, who uh, absolutely projects to be an awesome hitter and is a really exciting catcher for the Kansas City Royals, who happened to have a guy named Sal Perez. You know, like, you know, it was a long shot play. But he, I took him as my fourth catcher. So that's that's where I'm at. I will take a shot once it gets to the bench levels, whoever's left, whoever, if I have a, an area of weakness. So Vidal Brujan, I was like, I could have taken other prospects there, um, but I took Brujan because I was a little bit light on steals. And it was part of a Brujan Robles, yeah, 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 uh, uh, approach there where I took a bunch of, uh, you know, sixth outfielders that uh, could have some speed. So... I'm just, I'm not into it, man. It's like, it's like picking Clayton Kershaw. I'm more likely right now to overspend on Bobby Witt Jr. than I am to draft Clayton Kershaw at his ADP just to provide some sort of middle ground. But over time, I have become less willing to take on this type of risk. Now, Witt had an amazing season in the minors and it was after a slow start too. We've talked a lot about projections with prospects, how noisy they can be. Part of that's the playing time uncertainty. Part of that is the gulf between AAA and the big leagues right now. I think with Witt, there's a lot of ways he can make value. I would say it's possible that his situation this draft season is more like Ronald Acuna back when Acuna broke in. And Acuna, if I remember correctly... Acuna that year was going just outside the top 100, but not not much later than Witt's going right now. And if I'm way off on that, feel free to remind me that I'm wrong. It's very difficult to land on a player like that and get the production that we received from Ronald Acuna in year one, right? 2018 is a 20-year-old, 26 homers, 16 steals in 111 games with a 293, 366, 552 line. <sighs> That is no, absurd. But it's so freaking rare, dude. That's so Mike rare. Mike Trout was the number one prospect. He was uh, he was amazing. He sucked. Right, but you look First at Soto year. and you look at Jordan Alvarez. There, there are there are players that have come up and done it. And I would just say because Wit can steal bases, even if the power's not there right away, even if there's a a learning curve and the K rate jumps from the low 20s at AAA to the low 30s at the beginning of the season, if you believe the Royals are going to be patient with him, it comes down to how quickly you think he's going to adjust. Generally, but generally, I agree with the idea of just not being interested in part because in a snake draft, it's the opportunity cost that just stares me in the face. Like I realize dollar for dollar, you're still going to pay quite a bit to get wit in a salary cap draft auction situation. But if, if you're looking at the guy next to him in ADP, Chris Bryant, like who who is more likely to return 
the value you want in that spot. I think he has more helium than that. In my draft, he went in the seventh, right behind Corey Seager and ahead of other shortstops like Carlos Correa, Gleyber Torres, Willie Adamas. Like, I mean, those guys are pretty good. He also plays a position that is stacked. It's a loaded position right now. So it's not like I need to rush out and get him. That's why MJ Melendez and Vidal Brujan made more sense to me because they, you know, Brujan, if he if he hits, could steal like 35, 40 bases. And then like, you know, that's going to be crazy valuable. And regard and with regards to his cost, you know, I got him 17 rounds later. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, oh, this guy in the seventh, this guy in the tenth. <laughs> you know? It's like, I don't know. Um I just I can't do it, and I I've got Jeff Zimmerman in my ear. Playing time is king, and playing time on a prospect like that is it's a binary thing. You either you either win the lottery, or you just wasted that pick. Where would Wit really have to be going? Where you'd start to change your tune? Would it be fifty picks later? Would it be a hundred picks later? Like how how much of an overdraft do you think he is considering? The projection, which, you know, the bat X projections are now out along with ATC over uh, on the pages at Fangraphs. If you look at Bobby Witt Jr.'s projection from the bat X, that's the most pessimistic of the systems over there. 248, 18 bombs, 14 steals. That's in 127 games. Possibly plays a little more than that. It's a good power speed combo. It's an average that doesn't hurt you. That's worth having on your team in most mixed leagues that we play in for sure. So it's not even a matter of is he rosterable or not. It's just a question of how much are you willing to overpay relative to that projection for the possibility that it all clicks and 25-25 happens right away. Because that's in the range of outcomes, even if it's a relatively unlikely one from the jump. Okay, so we're going to do the this guy, not this guy, but this guy five rounds later. How about... Ahmed Rosario in the 11th. See, at that point, if Witt was going down where Rosario was going, I could pretty easily talk myself into Witt. And everyone listening yeah. is like, of course you'd take Witt there. Well, okay, so we're probably talking about 50 picks in ADP. Yeah, because that's extreme for me. That, 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 in that case, that's, um, uh, that would be almost, it's like 65 picks uh, between Witt and uh, Rosario. But yeah, I would say 50 is, is decent, yeah. Witt versus Kelnick to me is kind of a, an interesting toss-up. And we've seen Kelnick come up and go through some struggles already, but start to make the adjustments. So He went one round later, so he went you know, 15 picks later, basically. But, the, but the, see, I don't think that Kelnick... I mean, I do think yeah, Kelnick... But I, Kelnick is going to play. Kelnick's playing time is safer by comparison, but how much safer is it? I guess he could go back down. Yeah, if, he's, if he slumps badly, Kelnick can still get options. Yeah. So the core of the question was looking more at someone like Jose Barrero, whose AAA numbers in 2021 are fairly similar to Wits. I mean, it, Barrero's two years older for the level. That's a huge difference in terms of, of ceiling potential that needs to be accounted for. But does that fully justify a 300-pick difference in where they go? I mean, with Barrero, he might have to be more of a super utility guy. Kyle Farmer played well enough to probably have some share of the job at shortstop to begin the season. So you're you're taking on playing time risk, but if you're taking on playing time risk, you'd take it on in the 300 and 400 range if the skills are right. So I just think it's a, it's an interesting way to think about it. Like if you look at guys that 
played well in the minors who go a lot later than some of their counterparts, you can find some value. The other example that I thought was pretty interesting from the position player side was you know, Spencer Torkelson kind of goes in the mid-200s, and you get guys like Nick Prado and Tristan Cassis who go 200 picks later. For me, I, I think Torkelson's floor is more like what we saw from Andrew Vaughn last year, mm-hmm. and his ceiling is probably higher than Prado and Cassis by a decent margin. And quicker path to playing time. Even though Nick Prado looks ready to play in the big leagues, you talked about MJ Melendez a few minutes ago. They still have Carlos Santana. They have Sal. They have Melendez. They have Prado. So it's hard to see how all of those guys fit together right now. So you may have to wait. Pascantino. Yes. I messed up his name, I'm sure. Vinny. Vinny. Yeah, let's call him Vinny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then uh, we had a question about this guy, um, and I hate to just uh, mention it in passing and not use it in case we need content, but uh, 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 what I prefer to do rather than those guys is get those guys a year later after they've maybe struggled or played 100 innings, they have less luster. So my example of that is Brandon Marsh, who... I got in the 22nd. I I wouldn't even be surprised if there were a lot of leagues where he went ahead of the 22nd last year (laughs) when he was a prospect, right? As opposed to uh, this year when, you know, he's actually probably got playing time in front of him. And then on top of that, you have some information about what they've done at the major league level with some stats that can be useful in small samples. For example, Brandon Marsh had a 10% barrel rate. That's very good. You know, I'm, I'm all over that. Uh, his strikeout rate wasn't over. It wasn't nasty, nasty. It's not great, but it wasn't nasty, nasty. And he had some patience. So like he, he didn't swing at a bunch of stuff outside of the zone. These are all things that become meaningful pretty quickly. So I'd much rather take Brandon Marsh there. Uh, and in fact, I wasn't even planning on taking Bruhan, but he dropped like 200 or a hundred below his ADP. And at some point I was like, well, I do need to steal them. <laughs> Fine. I'll go, I'll go for it. But that's what I, I'm like the post-hype sleeper, quote-unquote. Uh, I'm a little bit more about that than the hype-hype sleeper. I think the best counter-argument to wit, if you don't want to buy the opportunity cost and the quality of the other players that go in the same range, is that Julio Rodriguez goes 150 picks later. And yes, Wit played at AAA last year. Rodriguez didn't. But Julio Rodriguez is the third best projected position player by WRC plus for the Mariners this year. They have any designs on going to the playoffs and improving upon what they did last year. We talked about the limitations of, of that lineup on our last episode. He's part of the plan. Like he has to be part of that. So if the rules don't change much. He's a huge candidate for like a, a, a like a May June uh, call up. Right. And you'll get wit sooner. Like I'd, I'd be stunned if the Royals made wit wait more than that long. 12 or 14 days or whatever they decide to do. Oh yeah, that, that there's that first there's that first bit, right? There's like two and a half weeks into the season, you know, then there's the super two. Two and a half weeks in the season you can you can try to manipulate it so they don't get the full year of service time, right? <laughs> but then two months into the season is the super two where you try to manipulate whether or not they get arbitration in their third year or not. Yeah, if if that's still a thing. So Right. I, I just I'd much rather try to catch lightning in a bottle around pick two fifty with Rodriguez than give up what I think is a much more valuable pick 
on a similarly risky profile. I mean, long, long term, if you just said dynasty, who do you prefer, Rodriguez or Witt? I think I'd take Rodriguez straight up anyway. Mm. And I think they're closer in skills right now than the draft market would, would lead us to believe. There was a lot of debate at Baseball Prospectus about the top three, uh, Rutschman, Rodriguez, and Witt. And I think they went Witt, Rutschman, Rodriguez. And to me, it's Rodriguez, Witt, Rutschman. Do you think a lot of that, though, is also factoring in where those guys play? I mean, Rodriguez, if he's a, a right fielder compared to being a shortstop or a catcher and accounting for real-life value of playing up the middle versus playing in a corner, that, that to me could be a part of that, too. Mm, yes, true. They, it's a real-life list. That's a good point. Uh, and Rutschman, Rutschman's value as a catcher could be huge. It's true. Yeah, so I, I think the last part of Mitch's question is, have you guys noticed an opportunity to pick up value in drafts by avoiding brand name prospects and taking prospects later with similar profiles? Yeah, ge- generally, yes, I, I think so. Um, the other example in his email, Nick Lodolo going 100 picks behind Hunter Green. I mean, that's two guys coming through the same organization, pitching at the same levels. Lodolo versus Green, it's a little more of a ceiling versus floor sort of argument. I think most analysts would tell you that Hunter Green's potential is greater. Uh, mm-hmm. But Nick Lodolo is probably safer just because of, of command and the, the depth of the arsenal maybe is a little bit better. I don't know if that, if that makes a huge difference for me. I think they're both draftable because I think if Sonny Gray ends up getting traded, there's a Castillo. very easy path for both of those guys to start. Yeah, Castillo could be traded. I mean, there's, there's so many paths for those guys. Again, there's like a case to be made for, you know, getting Reverse and Martin instead because... Uh, you know, if you look at the innings pitched for Hunter Green and uh, and Nick Lodolo over the last three years, it's very sparse. So, how many innings are you going to actually get? Yeah, it's it's going to probably be a, a tad on the light side. In 2020, it's still going to wreak some havoc on us, just as far as getting a feel for workloads and and really understanding where players are at in terms of development. I think a lot of guys had sluggish starts in 2021 in the minors because of the long layoff and mm. where they go in 2022 and how quickly they start could actually change a lot about how we view those players going forward. Uh, the guys that had the hype previously that don't have it right now are always interesting to me. I mean, I think we could probably say Joe Adele fits into that group now too. Two two guys on one team, Marsh and Adele. Marsh and Adele. I mean, Adele ADP in the last two weeks or so, just outside the top 225. You're looking at him versus Vaughn versus Jesus Sanchez versus Adam Duvall versus Harrison Bader versus Lane Thomas. Like, isn't that weird that we're we've reached the point where Joe Adele versus Lane Thomas is a redraft question? Like, <laughs> I know we talked about Justin Upton as kind of a forgotten veteran who still brings a lot of power. If if you have Upton and you have Trout and you have Brandon Marsh, who's important because he can play center field that can lead to a little bit of a playing time crunch that hurts Adele. But Adele did improve the strikeout rate in a big way last year. And I, I is he any is he any more risky playing time-wise than Lane Thomas? Like, I yeah, think so. There's some other uh, names I kind of like. Baum, uh, I think he still has some ability, though he, he's pretty poor defensively, and that's, that's really tough. But if there's an NLDH, I think he, he gets a little boon there. Gavin Lux. Uh, is like the definition of a post-type sleeper, although he still gets a decent ADP. Uh, do you have any? Second time he's yeah, right. uh, landed in this space. Perpetual post-type sleeper. <laughs> Two years in a row now. 
Still sleeping. Yeah, I mean, he's outside the top 200 with the Muncie situation that we've talked about with Seager leaving and you know just shuffling pieces around as it stands right now. He looks like he's going to play a lot. So I'd be pretty optimistic about Lux at this point. What do you think about Jaron Duran? I just have a, a little bit of that bias against uh, players. Oh, Austin Riley last year would have counted. Uh, that's an interesting one. Yep. Doing a, obviously doing a Google search while on the t- cast. Shut up, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, Duran, I just have the bias against, um, <laughs> you know, high strikeout rates. I, I, I maybe need to keep, you know, reinvestigating that bias. But uh, I do know that, like, teams that don't strike out that much do do better. And that I think that his strikeout rate was part of the reason why he didn't really take the role and run with it last year. I think the question is still interesting, though, because if you, again, look at projections, look at the wit projection, that 248, 302, 421, 18 homers, 14 steals, and you look at Duran, a little less playing time, but 257, 316, 410, 10 homers, 12 steals. Yes, that's not as good. Uh, old for the level relative to wit, but too, so that has to be accounted totally for. Different. Price is a lot different, and he has a lot of ways to make value, especially if they don't add another bat to the equation. I think he'll end up playing quite a bit. He... he a lot of my interest in Duran at his current price hinges on them not adding another impactful player. Especially in the outfield because, mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, Kike is best used at second right now um, because I don't know that Christian Arroyo is a, is a full-time starter at that position. So if Kike is best used at second right now, you know, center field is Jackie Bradley Jr. and Duran. And and actually right now, Duran is the starting left fielder as well. <laughs> Depth so they could actually probably add one more outfielder and Duran would still be a decent sleeper. I think in that scenario, his buffer for not hitting just gets smaller. Whereas currently... Like Jackie Bradley Jr. hits every year. I mean, it, all it takes is a, a bad slump from Bradley to start the season and, and then they decide he's done and, and here comes Duran. But thanks a lot for that question, Mitch. Definitely a lot of value to be had in some of the other prospects, the non-wit prospects, uh, especially guys that were prospects a year ago that have lost that and have now kind of settled into a discounted price. This is a question here from Cody about draft and hold. He's got his first draft and hold draft coming up in February. He doesn't really know what to do. Referred to himself as a noob and addressed us as non-noobs. And I think that's fair. I'm not an expert in draft and hold by any stretch of the imagination, but I've hopefully played it enough to not do dumb things. I think the biggest question is how do you build out a roster, a 50, a 50 slot roster? You know, you've talked about having four players eligible to cover each position. That's a great place to be. You do that in part with some multi eligible position players. In some instances, it's just drafting four catchers because you don't have a lot of multi position eligible guys that can catch. So you have to factor that into consideration. I think it ends up being between 26 and 30 hitters most of the time. Like a 28-22 split is the ideal split, but you have to adjust that in either direction based on how much risk you have there within will be, the pitching staff. There will be a last pick. There will be a last, you know, there'll be a last three-round pick where you're like, ooh, I ended up light here, and so I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to shift one bat, one pitcher, one, you know. But the 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 way you put yourself in position to do that is 
but multi-eligibility. But like I said, you don't have to pay for the multi-eligibility. You don't have to pay for Jake Cronenworth, you know, just because of the multi-eligibility. So I think at the beginning, what I just focus on is getting the best players. You'll have a starting lineup, right? Like you, you, you're going to have a, a season that starts and you're going to have just the starting lineup. So you kind of want your starting lineup to be as good as possible. And then you kind of shift into, okay, all right, I need to have four of each. I want to have at least three bodies at each position, each infield position, um, but uh, four eligible at each infield position, four catchers, uh, 10 outfielders, 16 starters, and uh, six relievers. But sometimes you want to go to seven relievers because you waited on saves. Um, that's the toggle that happens if you don't spend up on saves like everybody else. And you'll notice like Hader will go in like the second round or third round. Like you're going to be like, whoa, why are the saves going so fast? It's because you don't have the waiver wire. And so you need to have some sort of save strategy. And what I do is a modified punt. I don't do a full punt. I don't think it's possible to win like that, but I get like Romano. I got Romano and Bednar, two guys that show up really good in my model that I got in sort of the eighth, ninth, tenth, those those sort of rounds. And I felt like I did enough that I could only have six relievers. But if you punt even further, then you're going to need to have seven relievers because you need more darts. And you're going to have to throw more darts. And that's going to cost you either in your 16 starters, uh, starting pitchers, or it's going to cost you a, a position player. So that's the that's the kind of, uh, that's the rubric I've fallen on. I think it's a pretty good one. I did pretty well last year. Um, and it's, uh, pretty time tested within those, um, three or four, I would want, um, it's okay to take those. Like we're just talking about the prospect shots, right? It's okay to take prospect shots, but I wouldn't take like multiple prospect shots within a position because then, um, you will get, your guys will get hurt. Your stars will get hurt. And then you'll be like, oh crap. You know, I had four shortstops, but my two starting shortstops are hurt. And the other two were prospects. Right. So, yeah. you know, like one of the guy that ended up being really kind of important for my strategy was Taylor Walls, because I think Taylor Walls is going into the season as a shortstop, but I think he's going to play at third and I, I know he'll play at second. So now I've got a guy who's going to have three eligibilities at some point in the season and he's going to play. And even if he becomes a backup, he's going to be their super utility guy. He's going to play. Um, and so, you know, he can be a guy that has some upside, but he backs up like three positions for me and he didn't cost that much. So identify players that you think might add eligibility or, uh, multi-eligible guys that aren't expensive. And those are really great guys to start adding in the middle to be like, okay, I just backed up three positions with one guy. Bam. You know? Yeah. And I would also try and count the players that are, are, dealing with injuries right now mm-hmm. i would count them like prospects so if you happen to like the price on clayton kershaw that's one fewer prospect you're going to draft later taking, just because yeah you're taking a massive playing time risk due to injury I, I think you can get by with maybe four out of 50 roster spots four to five at most where you're taking on considerable risk so if you had let's say you had an infield prospect an outfield prospect and two pitching prospects and then maybe like one guy that has really high injury risk but you feel like on a per game or per inning basis you're getting great value that's about as much as you can possibly have as known injury playing time risk going into the season that way because if those things don't break your way and then the new injuries that hit your team hit you are going to be in a spot where you're playing some very sketchy players in the lineup and this 
often comes down to who does best in the battle of attrition, who has mm-hmm. the most available playing time on their bench that they can lean on. Uh, so just be really careful with the number of shots you take. I- I'm with Eno. I wouldn't punt a category completely. I'd probably spend a little more early draft capital on closers than you do, uh, but I am comfortable going into a league like this only having maybe one out of my top eight one of my circle of trust relievers and then taking shots after that because even if i finish middle to pack in saves that's fine that'll play i don't have to win the category i don't even necessarily have to be top three in the category to win at least the individual league but i think punting categories ends up putting you in a horrible spot especially in leagues where you can't make in-season moves to tinker and and make more adjustments i think punting is an in-season thing that you do in leagues with moves when something's not going well when you happen to draft adalberto mondesi for half your steals and he gets hurt and you can't find steals then you punt steals because you can trade away some steals to someone else get strong in another category and then supplement what you need on the wire, but punting in a format like this is also a bad idea. So I would try to avoid that if you can. And then lastly, there's uh, there's the three the three potential holes, like the the three places where you kind of almost have to pick a weakness, <laughs> right? Like it's a 15 team league, it's it's going to be tough, and you're going to have to have a strategy about one of these. So saves we talked about, you either got to spend up and 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 not get some of the position players you wanted because you're you're getting you're getting saves uh, that you think are locked down. Um, first base. First base is tricky. First base goes higher than you might expect. You might say, oh, Luke Voigt by the auction calculator, still $10 guy. He's still out there. I'm fine. Then Luke Voigt goes and you go, oh, I didn't look behind <laughs> him. Man. And that's how I ended up with Luis Diaz as my third first baseman. Josh Naylor is my fourth first baseman. He's not even eligible there yet. So in my draft, I picked the weakness of first base, basically, I think, with a, a minor weakness it saves. But that's that's the two. Is there is there a third one? Can you think of a third speed. one? Speed. Yeah, speed. That's it. Steals. So you you know, in my draft, what I tried to do was um, a modified punt of all three. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. I just told you my 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 first base board is um, Jared Walsh, Schwindel, uh, Lewin Diaz in Florida, and Josh Naylor, who's not eligible there. So that's the modified punt. I like Walsh and Schwindel, yeah. but like it's not the best first base group, right? I would put first base and third base as higher priority positions than they have been in the past because when you think about the way teams handle first base in particular, if they don't have a Vlad, a Freeman, an Olsen, a Goldschmidt, an Alonzo, an Abreu, someone who plays that spot every day. I mean, Walsh, I think, does make Did. that cut. I think that's about as thin as you can cut it. Maybe Josh Bell and CJ Crone and Reese Hoskins, Joey Votto are like the bottom here. Everybody else, every other team moves guys around quite a bit. And they'll platoon. And when you have platoons, third, you're going to lose third, time. There are more multi-eligible third guys than there are first base guys. Right. Yeah. That's why I think you can get away with waiting a little more at third base because the the weight at third base options, they might not be everyday third baseman, but because they play multiple spots, they come closer to everyday playing time than your platooned first baseman do. Yeah. Like I added Nico Horner, uh, David Bodie, and Josh Van Meter late, and uh, they're all going to have uh, third base and second base eligibility. And, uh, you know, I think 
to some extent. And so they show up as second baseman on a thing, but they, they were my backup third baseman as well. So I'm not as worried about third base. First base is tough because of what we're talking about. Then my saves guys. So this is the modified punt, everything strategy just to kind of show, you know, show my work. Uh, my saves guys are Romano, uh, Melanson, Bednar, um, Luis Garcia in San Diego, uh, Julian Merriweather as a uh, handcuff for Romano, um, and JP Fireisen in Tampa Bay. Not the best group, but I, definitely not the worst group. Definitely not the worst group in, that, in, in there. I have one other idea, theory, argument, point, something to put out there mm-hmm. as it pertains to roster construction and one of the reasons why I'm inclined to at least have one closer in my circle of trust and why I'm not afraid to burn the extra draft capital to get two if it breaks the right way for me. Mm-hmm. I'd rather not have to roster six or seven relievers trying to get to that midpoint in saves. If I draft too early, I'm probably only drafting two more total relievers and just running with four relievers all season. So I have, if I have two of my top eight, if I have a a Presley and Romano combination, right? If I get those two guys, I'm not going overboard. I'm not going Hayter Hendricks necessarily in that draft because I like the value of the hitters and the going there instead or the starting pitchers. But I get two out of my first eight. I'm probably drafting a lot less of those darts later. And then I have that extra depth I want or I can afford to take the extra shot on a prospect or an injured guy that might actually pop to fill a need elsewhere, right? So if the cost of getting the two top eight closers ends up being that I waited a little more on starting pitching, maybe in that build, I'm more inclined to then take a late flyer on a Mike Soroka or someone who I do have to wait for. But once he's back, I'm expecting top 20 quality innings from. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's that's the type of decision I'm comfortable making because of what it allows me to do later. It's not it's not just getting the saves. It's that I have more darts to throw in other places that might actually be more valuable in the long run. And ultimately, I like I like having that extra flexibility. The only retort I have is that, you know, I was surprised. I'm kind of a deep league aficionado, so maybe it's not that surprising. But I had like 20 players left on my queue when the, when the thing ended. You know, <laughs> like I still was like, ooh, there's still guys out there. And a lot of them were relievers. You know, there's a ton of relievers you can get in the end game. So I don't think I would necessarily limit. Uh, I don't think I would necessarily stop at four or five relievers. I think six is a good number. Um, but it is kind of maybe uh, an argument for get two really good ones. And then don't worry about relievers for a long time because they are going to be there for you at the end, especially with this powerful pitching plus model at your back. Right. The difference between the dart you're going to throw in round 28 versus round 48 is actually pretty small based on who's still there in the end game. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, for me, it was, uh, you know, that would be Luis Garcia, who I got, uh, I had to actually pay a little bit for in the 29th round. And then my next reliever was uh, Julian Merriweather in the 41st. Is there that much of a difference between them? They're both talented guys, could close, could not. One more question to get to from Jay Good, and it's a question. It's actually a trade question for a dynasty league. It's an 18-team dynasty league that uses OBP, K percentage, and extra base hits. 
The question is simple. Is it Vidal Brujan or Kyle Schwarber? The context, the sun is setting on some of the stars of my multi-title team, but I have some youngsters on the rise and my pitching is solid. So which side of Vidal Brujan or Kyle Schwarber are you on in an 18-team dynasty league right now that uses OBP? I mean, Brujan's surprisingly not, like for his profile, not going to help you necessarily in strikeout rate and uh, not surprisingly not going to help you in extra base hits. So it's possible that in this setup, he's not that valuable of a piece. If you feel good about your speed, the thing I would keep in mind is that OBP helps Schwarber. Mm-hmm. He owns that skill. His OBP will always stack up a lot better than his average. Uh, the power, like it, it's interesting. If you switch from average to OBP, Kyle Schwarber is basically Manny Machado with about the speed. That's the difference. That's a pretty big jump from where he is in average when you bring him down and he's more like a, I don't know, a Reese Hoskins in the outfield probably is the, the fair sort of comp you could make on Schwarber. It's a, it's a big swing in value. K percentage actually. doesn't help him much either. And the other thing is that like speed is just really hard to acquire. The only way to get speed in a dynasty league is to keep one of your young guys usually, right? Yeah. I think in this situation, if I'm looking more toward the future, I'm content to take the Bruhan side of this. Because one way or another, he's gonna play. Like I, I think the Yeah, my understanding is he'll be uh the walls and him will be backups at like the, together they'll back up the whole field. They'll they'll play it every everywhere. I mean, the short-term concern is that it's crowded and maybe they don't like him enough in center field to actually play him in center if they move on from Kevin Kiermeyer because they also have Josh Lowe, who is a good center fielder and can just play that spot. So you're worried that you have a, a super utility playing time share in the short term, but there's a ton of moving parts in Tampa Bay. If Bruhan hits, he plays there. If he hits and there's not a spot for him, he's a piece they can use to go get more pitching or whatever it is they decide they need in season. So I, I do I see enough paths for Bruhan to where if I'm in a rebuild, I prefer him. And that kind of sounds like the situation that that Jay is in here. If the sun is setting, man, don't 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 push it too hard, man. This seems like one of those deals where you're like, I wanna I can still win. I can still win. And your team's old and you give up a player who two years later you're like, ah, damn it. Schwarber turns twenty nine in March. And Bruhan will be 24 in February, so maybe he's a little older than people realize. But five-year gap between them, speed is hard to find. And I think it, it also comes back to how much you believe in Bruhan just as a pure hitter. You're right, extra base hits, that's still a question. Is he going to do that consistently? We didn't see a ton of game power from him prior to AAA last year. At least it was Durham, right? It wasn't Albuquerque, it wasn't PCL, but... How much do we trust Bruhan's power? Like the, the good news is that power came alongside an improved ground ball rate. Like earlier in his career, Bruhan was hitting the ball on the ground a lot, so some of that could actually be real. And Schwarber's strikeout rate at twenty-seven percent. There were only twenty qualified batters with a twenty-seven percent strikeout rate or worse, so it's actually still sneaky bad. Yeah, I think that being an actual category too factors in a little bit more. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, and he's getting older, it's probably only going to get worse. So I say hold Bruhan. I don't love Bruhan, which is why it took so long to kind of work this one out. But uh, I say hold Bruhan. Yeah, might be the kind of trade that looks a lot better in, in 23 or 24, or the decision to hold Bruhan looks better then than it does in 2022, mm-hmm. because I think Schwarber 
crushes him for this year, even in that format uh, with those wrinkles. Yeah, like I like in that in that draft that DC that I did. I'm hoping for like a, a Manny Margot season from Bruhan this year, like something where he gets to 300, 400 plate appearances, maybe and 20 steals or something. Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable sort of expectation playing time wise with the way things are tracking at least right now. Thanks a lot for the question, Jay. If you got a question for a future episode, several ways to get those in. You can email us, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com, or you can ask a question in the comment section under this video on YouTube. We really appreciate people doing that. Help us defeat the algorithm. If you'd like to get a subscription to The Athletic, you can get 33% off the first year at theathletic.com slash ratesandbarrels. You want to get in before the Fantasy Baseball Draft Kit launches in a few weeks. Make sure you have your subscription all lined up for that. If you're enjoying the show, take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and barrel up on the like button if you're watching us on YouTube. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening.